This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's one of the agonizing decisions of modern life. Should I put this in the garbage or the recycling bin? Questions like that come in all the time through Colorado Wonders, where we answer your questions about our state. And so we took a trip to a recycling plant with two Coloradans who brought the trickiest of their trash with them. My name's Matt Petzos. I live in Wheat Ridge. My name is Arna Kaplan. I live in Park Hill in Denver. And I can show you my trash. Show us your trash. <laughs> Empty oil bottle with cap. So like olive oil? I brought... Fair bit of newspaper. Recycling newspaper. Tin of salmon. Beer bottles. Very good bottle of wine. Yes. Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc, and it was delicious. And you didn't even share it. I did with my husband. <laughs> Contact lens case. Sour cream container. And uh, some newspaper, mail. Just more beer bottles and paper. You're a beer fan. I am. Paper towel roll. And that's about it. I met Arna and Matt at Alpine Waste and Recycling in North Denver. They collect, sort, and ship recyclables from all over the state. There's a good chance your yogurt cup is here. We cover all of Denver metro area. We will go as far west as Grand Junction. Well, material gets delivered here from that far. We'll present Arna and Matt's trash and even some of mine to this guy, Alpine's vice president of recycling, Brent Hildebrand. But remember, every recycler is different, so what flies here may not where you live. To borrow an old phrase, check your local listings. I asked our Colorado Wonders questioners what perplexes them the most about recycling. I always wonder how clean something has to be. If it has to be 100% clean or just kind of clean. I also wonder if I have to remove this plastic. So me and my girlfriend usually remove all the plastic before we throw it away. Wait, you go through junk mail? Yeah. And, and you remove the out. plastic address windows? Yeah. And then you put it in the recycling? Yes. That's a commitment, <laughs> Matt. It's more of my uh, partner's Obsession? Habit. Yes. Habit. We'll call yes. it a habit. Yes. What really perplexes me is what happens when people put things in that don't belong, and how does that affect the process? That's my real big question. Well, Brent, I want you to meet Arna and Matthew. Great. Welcome to the facility. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. As you notice, I brought um, some oil bottles, mm-hmm. and I've always wondered, do I need to make them really clean, and is it okay to leave the caps on top? Okay, so yeah, that's a good question. Um, what I tell people is don't use a ton of natural resources like hot water to get it perfectly clean. Just a little rinse and be done with it, and then you'll be fine. So if there are food particles on it, that's okay? Well, we want them out of there, but there's going to be some residue mm-hmm. left in there, and um, we know that. So yeah, just rinse it a little bit and then go ahead and put it in the recycling. And how about the caps? And the caps, so if it's a plastic bottle, you can leave the cap on if it's a plastic cap. If it's a glass bottle with a metal lid, you have to separate those two items. So if it's a like material, you can leave it on. If it's totally different kind of material, you have to, you have to separate those oh, two. Okay, that's really helpful. Yep. So what, like a, oh, a pickle jar that has glass and metal can both be recycled even if you separate them? Both can be recycled, but they have to be separated. Yes. Why? 
Um, because it's two different materials. Uh, if, if you have glass going with metal to the end user, that's not good for their process. Or if you have metal going with the glass to the glass manufacturer, that's very bad for their process. So we got to remove the two from each other. I throw my stuff in one bin, but you still want it separated, even if I'm throwing it into one dumpster. Correct. Now, you talked about not wanting people to use too many resources cleaning stuff. Yeah. I gather you think constantly about sort of energy in, energy out. Yeah, well, you know, we only have so many natural resources, and the best we can do to conserve them, we try to promote that here at Alpine. Knowing that some people are going to put things in that aren't really clean, when mm-hmm. does it become a real problem? The problem happens if we have, say, a half a can of beans or something like that. That's a problem. But like a peanut butter jar, you know, you're not going to get that perfectly clean because it obviously sticks to the sides. Just try to get it as clean as you can in that case and put it in the recycling. What happens with the beans you leave in there? <laughs> Well, it could affect how the machinery separates that particular item, depending on what it is. So, for example, if you have a water bottle that still has a little bit of water left in it, the machine that sorts that out sorts it using air to shoot it out of the system. Well, if it's too heavy, it won't be able to shoot it up and out. Because water is actually pretty heavy. That's right. And so are pinto beans. Yeah, and so would beans be, yeah. Brent mentioned that sort of air gun machine, which we got to see in action. It not only uses air, but infrared detection to identify objects. So if you look in this window, this is our optical sorter. And you can hear the air nozzles shooting it up and out. They're all here. But if you look inside, you can see it being shot up. It's using infrared to detect how much light is reflected, looking for one type of light. And across the way, there's another robot, the first of its kind in North America. It identifies materials with something that approximates our own eyes. His name is Clark, and he sorts milk and juice cartons and coffee cups. Now, back in Alpine's education room, away from the cacophony, we're still trying to get to the bottom of how dirty recyclables can be. What about food? box that I brought in might have like food oil on it for a cardboard box. Is that Yeah. And can I just interject that I brought a pizza box. Did you? I brought a pizza box from Sexy Pizza. I'm giving them a free plug, I guess. But I'm not I'm not getting free pizza. I, I paid for it. And it's you know it's beautiful cardboard, but it's a little greasy, kinda like kinda like Matt's uh food container there. Yeah, what I would say is we don't accept food items that do have a lot of grease on them. We'd still get quite a few of those. You know, I will say the ones that don't have a whole lot of grease, we will recycle. But, you know, that's really for the person that's educated and knows, can look at it and see that there's not a whole lot of grease on it to know it's okay. So it's kind of it's kind of hit or miss. If you live in Denver, Denver has the green composting bins. And food containers can go into the compost bin and be collected every week. You're getting a hearty nod yes from Brent. Now, why don't we just play a game with the container you brought, Matt? So do you think it's greasy enough that you'd put it in the trash or the recycling? It doesn't seem too greasy. I would put it in the recycling. Brent, pick that up and tell me if he's made the right decision. 
He has made the right decision. That is perfectly okay. Should we do the same with the pizza Let's box? Do it. Yep. Open that up, Matt. Oh, the bottom of that is awfully greasy. I hate to say it, but I think it's going in the trash because I don't have compost. Yep, that is correct. It has too much grease on it, um, so that would have to go into the compost. Now, the top of it is not as greasy. Could I rip off the top yep. half and recycle that? Yes, you could. If you can get the top half off that doesn't have grease on it, you can put it in the recycling. The heart of Alpine Recycling is a two-story maze of conveyor belts, machinery, and catwalks. But it's not all automated. Lots of sorting still happens by hand. It's noisy, it's complex, and I'm surprised at how much manual work is being done to separate things. There's a lot of workers in here. Yeah, so the equipment does a great job, but it's not perfect. And then on top of that, the quality restrictions that I have at the end user, I have to have quite a bit of manual labor to help the machinery out. This is not a field where the human being will be replaced entirely, or it's just going to take a while? No, it's not going to be replaced entirely. I'm surprised at how little it smells. I mean, it's a little fragrant, but it's not awful. No, it's typically not too bad. Uh, The stream that we get is pretty clean, so even on a 100-degree day, it's not too bad. How important is it to pay attention to those little triangles and have little numbers inside them? Yeah, so the triangles, I, I think they're a good indicator of what's acceptable and what's not. But they're like a secret language. That's true. <laughs> My recommendation is to just to check whoever is, is providing your recycling service and see what they have as far as acceptable numbers and unacceptable But Brent, this is a really important point. Not every recycler does things the same way. So it's possible that some of the advice we get today will not be universally applicable. Why are they different, though? Like, if the end users are all the same, if it's all the same market you're going to be selling to. Well, some systems, like the system that I have, are different. So, for example, I allow big packaging styrofoam in our single stream. Nobody else in Colorado does. So The stuff that, like, protects a TV that's being shipped. Correct. Um, a hot coffee cup. I now allow those in our single stream. Nobody else does in this state. Mm. So, yeah, knowing everybody's a little bit different on the processing side of the business. So knowing where your material goes and their rules is very important. Now, the coffee cup you mentioned there, I think yep. that has to resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, that's new for us, and uh, it's a pretty big deal in the industry, even nationwide. There's not many people that accept coffee cups, and and we're one of the few. And that's partly, I imagine, because it's paper on the outside, but then doesn't it have like a plastic insulator? Yep, yep. It's a uh, plastic lining. Some people think it's a wax lining, but it's not. And our end user can get the plastic away from that fiber and reuse the fiber. Reuse it for what? To make another cup. Oh, to make another cup. Yep. Okay. Is that true of most recycling where the thing they take it from is used to make basically the same thing? No, not in all cases. You know, you might have a PET, a, a number one water bottle. Yeah. That might go to make carpeting or a T-shirt or fleece lining. So uh, they don't always go into the same thing. And your market, is it in Colorado for people who want this end product or is it all over the world? It's a worldwide market. So we ship to many countries. We try to keep stuff domestically, 
but um, in some cases, it does go overseas as well. Like what? Name some countries. China is a big user of our material. Vietnam, South Korea, India, those countries all use materials from the U.S. to make new materials. But what an interesting feeling that you might be sending your recycling and it could end up on like a slow boat to China, which actually sounds kind of inefficient energy-wise. Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that. I mean, if you really look at uh, how much it's being handled, it goes from here on a train to one of the ports to a ship to another country. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of handling there. But in some cases, the rates we get paid for material, which are very important to our business, they're different in different areas. So we have to kind of watch what those rates are doing and try to maximize our uh, revenue. Yeah, you have to make it worth it for your bottom line. Well, I'm fascinated by the fact that my recycling may wind up in China Mm -hmm. and then maybe come right back to me in terms of another product. Uh, And I know there are a lot of industries that do this, and it just seems so incredibly inefficient. Yeah, you know, when you really think about it, cardboard, for example, a lot of cardboard goes to China, and it'll probably be made into a box to house a TV. It comes right back to the U.S. You mentioned um, you have to separate glass and metal mm-hmm. if they're uh, a lid and a, a bottle. Yep. What about mail if it has a plastic window on it and it's paper letter? Do you have to re- separate those? Nope. Uh, a plastic window envelope is just fine. Okay. Um, you don't have to worry about separating those two. Okay. Wait, can I just tell you? This yeah. is This is crazy, Brent. <laughs> Matt has been ripping out his plastic windows. Yeah, which, I you know, I, I applaud somebody that takes the time to do stuff like that because that shows me they really care about what they're doing. How much of your um, product that you get into your plant do you actually throw away compared to recycling? So we operate at about a 10% contamination rate. So 10% would go out as residue. And that's a little lower than most facilities like this. Uh, A lot of facilities like this will run in the 15 to 20%. And that's really due to some technologies that we have installed. 10 to 20%. You know, I think this speaks to a deep-seated fear we all have about recycling, which is, oh my gosh, all of this is just going to wind up in the trash. Apparently that's not the case. No, that's not. We, we go through a lot of work here to make sure as much of the stream is recycled and sent to good end users that make the new materials. So um, it's, it gets recycled for real. I have one item that I'm curious to run by you, and that is a whipped cream container. Yeah. So it's got some sort of metallic body. Mm-hmm. It's got a plastic top. And some kind of covering that's, you know, essentially the label information. Yeah. These seem so bulky and wasteful to me. What's the answer, Brent? We can accept aerosol can. I consider that kind of like an aerosol can. Yeah. Just remove the, the top, if you could, the lid. But the can itself, we can recycle. You can't recycle the lid or you just want it separated when I put it the in the single The lid is strip. too small. That, that'll get filtered out as trash in one of our uh, specialized screens. But the actual can will get recycled. The lid is plastic. Yep. And, but that's too small a piece of plastic? Correct. We have a specialized screen that is filtering off anything that's like two inches or smaller. So my contact lens case, even though it has a recyclable sign on it, 
you would just toss it because it's too small. Yeah, a machine specifically would filter that out as trash. But that's different from the metal tops to the pickle jars. Those metal tops aren't too small to recycle. Right, they'll make it through. Is there anything you would suggest to people to how they can recycle more instead of throwing stuff away? We get a lot of metal that should not be in the recycling. Mm. And, you know, we accept tin cans and aluminum cans, but we don't accept other metals. And we fill a big 30-yard construction dumpster every day full of metals that should not be in the single stream. Like what? Pots and pans, car parts, barbecue grills, metal car bumpers. We get a lot of metal that should not be in there. And what's happening is I think people are trying to make decisions on their own on saying, you know, this is metal, so it's got to be recyclable, and I get that, but not in a single-stream system. And that doesn't just go for mine. It's any single-stream system. Tin cans and aluminum cans only. People have tried to recycle chrome bumpers. Oh, yeah. I pulled one off the belt myself. And pots and pan- whole pots and pans. Yep. Now, what would you do with those if you wanted to ensure they had another life? Well, you can take them directly to a metal recycler in town here. Okay. That's a specific subsection of this yep. world. It is. Speaking of, I asked Brent Hildebrand what is the strangest thing he's ever pulled off the conveyor belt. We actually had a bearded dragon, a lizard come through that we tried to save. You know, we took him to a vet and everything and bought, a, bought an aquarium and put him in our conference room. And it was kind of, uh, felt bad for him, but yeah, we've seen it all. I have one last question for you. Will you take our recycling today? Yes, of course we will. We can Thank dump you. it in the pile together. <laughs> Great. You don't have to drive home with all that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Arna Kaplan of Denver and Matt Petzos of Wheat Ridge getting recycling insights from Brent Hildebrand of Alpine Waste and Recycling in North Denver. Now that I've seen their operation, I think of Brent as the Willy Wonka of trash, and we have a really cool Instagram story at News CPR. So what do you wonder about in Colorado? We'll try to find the answer through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China All to myself alone Get you and keep you in my arms evermore. Leave all your lovers weeping on a faraway shore. Wait, 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 wait. Stop the music. Stop the music. Maybe you still can't shake the feeling that your recycling is going to end up, as one person tweeted me, going straight to the dump or the ocean. There are a lot of headlines right now that China has stopped taking stuff. One recent story in The Guardian was titled Moment of Reckoning. U.S. cities burn recyclables after China bans imports. CPR's Alexandra McMahon actually reported on this when the China news broke more than a year ago. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. What's the story here? So it's not a 
all-out ban on our recyclables to China. They implemented a 0.5% contamination limit on everything we send to them. So, so it has to be like really clean material. In other words, it can't be all mixed up. Exactly. And that made things a lot harder for our recyclers. But they're still sending recyclables to China, including Alpine. And that's partly because Alpine tries so hard not to have a lot of contamination. Right. Like you heard Brent mention earlier, he said that they have a very low residue rate. Last year, when the China restrictions came down, Alpine did things like increase its workforce by 15 percent to keep up with the 0.5 percent contamination limit. And they also started shipping recyclables to other countries to supplement what China wasn't able to take anymore. Uh But they still send as much as they can to China. And this, I suppose, makes it even more important for us, the individual recyclers, to get it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Alexandra. No problem. I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China. All to myself alone. One of my favorite words is triumvirate, a group of three. There's such power in that word. And there will be a lot of power on stage when three Denver dance companies present a show called Tour de Force. We're talking about Colorado Ballet, Wonderbound, and Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble. These groups have never worked together quite like this. So let's meet the triumvirate and not just talk about this show, but also about their lifelong love of movement. Gil Boggs is artistic director of Colorado Ballet. Hi, Gil. Good morning, Ryan. Garrett Ammon is artistic director at the contemporary dance company Wonderbound. Nice to see you, Garrett. Hi, Ryan. And Cleo Parker-Robinson runs the ensemble that bears her name. Lovely to see you again, Cleo. It's great to be here and great to be with you, Ryan. Yes. Take us into the performance hall. What will audiences get in terms of spectacle with this triumvirate? Well, I think Gil should start because he is the visionary and uh, and the radical one, I say. The radical <laughs> one. He's the radical one. Okay. He's the one who created this wonderful moment. Gil? Well, uh, what you're going to see is uh, three companies working together, dancers from every company, um, you know, collaborating in the studio, working with these two wonderful choreographers was the uh, sort of impetus behind all of this. And why is that radical, do you think? Um, Radical because it took about three years to get this project together. Oh, my goodness. Um, Talking Mm -hmm. with Cleo and Garrett and just scheduling this. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you don't know how the dancers from each company are going to react with each other. Mm -hmm. But I have to say on day one when Cleo walked in, it was magic. Garrett, what are audiences going to see? Oh, gosh. I, well, uh, the great thing about this show and the thing that I've thought a great deal about is that I think in, in the world that we live in, we spend a lot of time trying to differentiate ourselves, trying to say, um, uh, you know, define what makes us different. I'm unique. Is, right. <laughs> Follow exactly. me on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is a moment to say this is uh, us all yeah. together yeah. We define ourselves as dancers, as da- you know. So, um, to uh, as kind of an expression on a bigger scale in the world, we could spend more time talking about how we're all yeah. we're all the same too, right? Did, did you have to navigate each other's egos 
And did the dancers? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. no. Oh, come on. There was no time You're, for that. This is <laughs> No, wait, 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 Ryan. There was no time for that. No, no, no. We have tight schedules. We went right to the work. And really, I think that's uh, that might be the misperception about artists and dancers. Hmm. Um, we love so much having the opportunity to create and work together and uplift each other. I mean, watching each other work. And, and I mean, let's say my company coming into class before we even start rehearsal, we're in class with Colorado Ballet. We don't get to do that. So even watching these dancers do, I don't know how many pirouettes, one, two, three, ten, twenty, you know, you're going, whoa. And, you know, we, we don't get to be in that. Try it again. Try it again. The same way with us. If we're doing anything that, that a dancer hasn't seen, we're going, wow, watch them work through that. It's just tremendous uh, respect that how, happens. How do you blend the very different styles of these three companies, Gil? We. <laughs> we. <laughs> um, uh, very carefully, <laughs> I would say. But um, watching – so our dancers working with Clio, you know, it is movement that they don't, they're not doing every day. And, like what? Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 he can show you. No, he's got the movement down. No, no, it's really funny because they. But, but these are they movements that the ballet dancers aren't accustomed to. No, no, most of the time they're very um, upright. They're on point. They yeah. have to be aligned, and I'm taking them out of their alignment a lot of times, and and they get real tickled when they find their bodies moving a certain way, and they start laughing. It's just a wonderful moment to discover like things that move, and I go, well, you know, I worked with Maria a long time ago. I mean, maybe. Maybe twenty five years ago, the, the founder yes. of well, Colorado Ballet. Uh, well, the no, no, I did work with the founders, and that was forty five years. Okay, ago, I'm not sure who Maria ago. is. Oh, oh the rehearsal director for okay. and, and soloist. You've got a clue I'm in here. She was no, a principal dancer uh, she was a principal, for years with Colorado Ballet. Principal dancer with with, and yeah. she's Russian and she's wonderful. So I brought a tape in of of her moving so that they would say. Oh, if she can do it, I'm going to try it. So it, it's a lot of movement that isolations that they've never done. Anything to add, Garrett, about uh, these three companies kind of blending but also learning from each other? Yeah, when um, for us in the process, you know, our dancers are classically trained ballet dancers as well. Um, but the work that we do, we don't work on point. Um, our work is uh, much more grounded, much um, much earthier, but still using that classical uh, vocabulary. And we also do a lot of physical partnering where um, the ladies are lifting the men and moving the men as much as the men are moving the women. Oh. And so that was an interesting process to bring everyone together because I paired each Colorado ballet dancer with a Wonderbound dancer. So everyone is paired um, with somebody from the other company. So they had to create this you know, deep unity with each other um, right from the beginning. I just want to give props to Maria Messina, yes. uh, who retired after a very illustrious yes. career with Colorado Ballet. She's Shame phenomenal. on me. Shame on me. And, and the rehearsal director now. She's wonderful. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And three titans of Colorado dance join me in the studio uh, because their companies have blended together in a new show called Tour de Force. We're talking about uh, Cleo Parker Robinson, Colorado Ballet's Gil Boggs, and Wonderbound's Garrett Ammon. I wonder if we might move from the show in particular to just talk about the fact that you have dedicated your lives to this art form. And I want to know from each of you your earliest dance memory. Gil? 
of my earliest dance memory. Of either dancing yourself or seeing it. So the reason I got into dance, into ballet, was my best friend, his mother was a teacher at a, a what we call a Dolly Dinkle school um, in South a, Georgia. A Dolly Dinkle school. Yeah, just like a strip <laughs> strip mall school. Yeah. And uh, and this was South Georgia in 1970. Wow. And I went to my, my sister was taking classes there and I went to her recital and my good friend, Ken Butcher, was on the stage. And he never said anything about this to any of us, but his mother was a teacher there, so he had, he was the only gentleman on the stage. And I remember him being a pirate and just looking both ways. And I said, "I got to do this." And did you you didn't have a sense that you could do that before that moment? I had no idea, you know. And when my mother came to, I said, "I want to take dance," and she passed out. She came <laughs> she came to not 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 literally, but she was very surprised and I think very happy about the decision. So it was it was the proverbial, you know, dressing from football practice into tights and going to ballet class. Okay, Cleo, earliest dance memory. Wow, 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 I love that. I, I've never heard this story. I love it. Well, no, I think it was really, I, you know, I, I grew up in Five Points. Uh, I grew up and I was born in the Rossonia, so there was dance and music going on all the time. I was born in it and didn't realize it. But my father was really one of my first teachers, and my mother um, was a musician. I mean, she played French horn. So she, my father, this jazz man, and my mother, this classical, you know, part of her life. And they, just whenever I would move, I had an audience. They were the best audience ever. And I'm like, hey, I, I may not make my band. I'm not happy about all that. But when I start moving, they love it. So, you know, I started dancing that way, knowing that those two things were very important, to be able to experience it and then to let others experience it with me and to also share it. It was really magical. But, you know, when your parents uh, do anything, any kind of craft or profession, there are two ways you can go, right? You can follow in their footsteps or you can rebel yeah, and right. say, I I'm not going to do that. Right, right. Why do you think you went the route of following in their footsteps? Well, I don't know that I followed. I mean, my father became one of the first black actors in Denver at yeah. the Bombies. So I grew up at the Bombies watching Carola Ballet. So I met Ferdinand Nault. And, and when I saw Carmina Barana, I went, I want to do that. that. So then I knew mm -hmm. I wanted to choreograph. I mean, it went from, I don't want to just dance it. I want to make that magic happen. And the music was so powerful. But, you know, I'm not so sure um, they wanted me to be a dancer. Actually, I was working to be a doctor because they were like, oh, no, all black folks can dance. You, you know, you're not going to make any money. You've got to do something that's important. And all those things were like, oh, no, that was the defiant part of me that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know we can make a living and we can make um, a community understand how wonderful and powerful dance I is. I have a feeling you have tended to a fair bit of wounds, though, <laughs> uh, in choreography. So just because you didn't have a medical career yeah, doesn't right. mean that injury isn't <laughs> oh, very yeah, much a part of your of life. <laughs> Garrett Ammon from Wonderbound, what's your earliest dance memory? My earliest dance memory is um, fourth grade. We did an entire quarter of um, square dance once a week. Where was that? In Tucson, Arizona at Sam Hughes Elementary. Wow. <laughs> and what did you like about square dance in particular? Um, well, I, it, I think I was fortunate to go to a school that had a lot of arts programming. Um, in uh, third grade, we had a mime that spent a quarter with us doing. So we learned mime in third grade. Fourth grade was was oh. square dancing. Um, my fifth grade teacher taught me to jitterbug. So, like, I had these exposures to dance um, that were um, – at, at the time, I had no idea that I'd become a dancer. But um, there was something that resonated about using my body to express myself that was um, – you know, and I, I – you know, our family didn't, didn't have much money. And um, so it was through – 
through school and through nonprofit organizations that I was able wow. to um, get my dance education. I desperately want to track down the man who is a visiting school mime mm. and interview him. Who is that guy? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. You know, um, several years ago, I was actually doing some research for some personal writing that I was doing, and I actually believe I found him. And he's wow. still in Tucson, um, still teaching programs oh, in mime wow. and doing, um, doing productions there. My so. goodness. Okay, oh, leave my. us with this. A time you have been moved to tears by dance. Gil? Oh, last weekend, sitting through Cleo's <laughs> run-through of the work that she did. You know, it's a, it's sort of it's a tribute to civil rights, and it was just very powerful, very moving. And so, um, that was it. That was the last time for me. My goodness, it's so recent. Yes, Cleo Parker Robinson. For me too. When I watch these dancers together, every time I'm in rehearsal, for tour de force, for tour de force. I am I'm so full that I it, it's like a natural high I can't I can't I can't even come down I don't even want coffee I mean I don't want anything <laughs> I wanted to stay in that moment and it, it it's joy it's tears it's 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 tearful joy, joy, joyful tears. That I love it. I love it. I, it makes me that crazy. I can't even think. It's wonderful. And um, I'm so proud of them because they're courageous. And that's what I asked them. I said, where is the civil rights movement now? Where is the movement now? And I kept looking at them and I said, you are the movement. You are what the civil rights movement is about. Oh. You manifested it. A literal and... Uh, a philosophical movement. What a beautiful use of, yeah. of that word. Okay, Garrett Ammon, when have you been moved to tears by dance before um, we go? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, uh, sometimes it can be be um, the smallest moments. The, this past two weeks, we've been in production with um, a string quartet from the Colorado Symphony um, led by Yumi Wong Williams. Oh, yes. And um, what an amazing experience. So we did um, Schubert's string quartet number 13 and Beethoven's string quartet at number 13 and that experience of um, seeing the dancers on stage with these incredible musicians um, that like and the music itself can move you to tears so um, there are multiple moments throughout the show that just like just you know kind of even as as the director and having and see seeing this every single day there are moments where it just grabs you yeah wonderbounds garrett ammon we heard from cleo parker robinson and from colorado ballet gil boggs their dance companies share the stage at the ellie calkins opera house in denver next weekend in tour de force and we'll post some photos from rehearsals at cpr.org this is colorado matters U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and former Governor John Hickenlooper went to Iowa over the weekend, spreading their message to voters as they both ponder a run for president. As a Democrat, I'm tired of defending bad government. You know, what we should be defending is the government that works well. Unless we are able to come together and find ways to get to common ground, and really work together on solving some of these big issues that are facing our country, we're toast. That was Bennett followed by Hickenlooper. The two are expected to make a final decision about running soon. CPR's Anthony Cotton was with them in Iowa over the weekend. Hi, Anthony. Mr. Ryan Warner, how are you? I'm doing well. At least nine Democrats have announced their candidacies. Another half dozen or so, including Hickenlooper and Bennett, are considering running. Uh, What kind of response did these two get in Iowa, the state that kicks off the primary season? 
It's clear that people like them. They're impressed by what they say. Bennett may have a little bit of an edge in name recognition from going after Texas Senator Ted Cruz during the recent partial government shutdown. Yeah, that kind of viral video. Right. Neither are considered stars at this point, however. The cover of Time magazine has a number, uh, an illustration with a number of potential candidates kind of peering into the White House behind Donald Trump. Neither Hickenlooper or Bennett were included in it. Okay. So I know that Hickenlooper was with a senator from California over the weekend. Tell us about this. Uh, Yeah, he was at a soup supper with, with Kamala Harris and former Obama cabinet member Julian Castro. Uh, there were a couple of things about it that were pretty interesting. Yeah. Harris was the first speaker, and she almost gave a sermon talking about a number of truths that Americans need to face on issues like immigration. It was a very macro talk. When Hickenlooper spoke, it was more micro. He just shared his personal story of going from an unemployed geologist to governor. you got to keep in mind, I, I grew up a, a skinny kid. I had, like, thick Coke bottle glasses, and so I didn't have a lot of confidence when I was a kid, and I certainly never ran for student council. Now, I'm going to guess that all the other candidates that that you see as potential presidential candidates, uh, all of them probably ran for president, class president, right? (laughs) Except one. That would be me. Okay, this would truly be his first presidential run. Uh, What else stood out? Well, I'm not sure if this is really widely known, but apparently his son, Teddy, played a major role in the 2013 changing state law that requires universal background checks for gun purchases. Oh, how so? Well, you know, I think this is the prime example of the difference between being governor and running for president. In Colorado, Hickenlooper's family was really off limits in terms of the public spotlight. Mm -hmm. That probably won't fly if you're running for president. So early on Saturday, he mentioned his wife, Robin Pringle, and how she's the vice president with Liberty Media. And then a little later, he told this story. I made the mistake of uh, complaining to my son, Teddy. At that point, he was 11 years old. Uh, and that's just a terrible mistake. He said, Dad, what do you do at work all day that's so hard? Make decisions? I said, well, Teddy, it's not that easy. Because Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. And... After Teddy chewed me out for not getting the facts, I came into the office and said, what are the real facts in Colorado? So the law was passed, like we said, in 2013. And here's Hickenlooper discussing some of the early results, which would probably send fact checkers around the state into a feeding frenzy. Well, we went and got the facts. 38 people convicted of homicide tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. 133 people convicted of sexual assault. 620 burglars. 1,300 people convicted of felony assault. That's where someone usually goes to the hospital. All tried to buy guns and we stopped them. There were 420 people who had a judicial restraining order not to see their ex-spouse or their ex-boss. They tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. And just in case you don't think crooks are stupid, 138 people, when they came to pick up their gun, we arrested them for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime. (laughs) Meanwhile, Senator Michael Bennett, I understand, spoke at a house party and held a farming roundtable in rural, rural Madison County. 
Matt, oh, where there are nice bridges. Very that Madison County. lovely nice bridges. Uh-huh. I did not meet Francesca, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bennett was very well prepared. He, he likened the house party to hosting a town hall in Pueblo. Uh, one of the numbers he pushed as evidence of how things need to change in Washington, D.C. was 9%, as in the approval rating of Congress with the American people. I used to walk through the Denver International Airport when we were having these idiotic fights about various things that I couldn't possibly explain to the people that I represent, and, I, and I'd want, wish that I had a paper bag over my head so nobody could see me. And, and I used to wonder as I was walking around feeling that way, like why anybody in the planet would want to work at a place that has a 9% approval rate in the United States Congress. <laughs> Now, that would seem to beg the question, why would he want to be president right. where, the, where the potential for disapproval is through the roof? Because I think the stakes are really high. They're the highest they've ever been in my lifetime. And I think it's an unusual position to be in to have the chance to be able to run for that job and be able to make a contribution to the debate. I don't think there are people talking about it the same way I was talking about it in that room. Yeah, what did he say in Iowa that was unique then? I think it's really, you know, it's kind of one of those beauty is in the eye of beholder, mm-hmm. the beholder things. Uh, at one point, Bennett said that someone has called him a pragmatic idealist. I think Hickenlooper probably considers himself a progressive pragmatist. You know, is is there a difference between the two of them and, and Julian Castro or, or Kamala Harris? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. On Saturday, though, there were a number of reporters who covered both Bennett and Hickenlooper in Iowa. So there were bound to be questions about how similar the two of them may be, given the Colorado backdrop. But Hickenlooper wasn't having any of it, as was pretty clear when I asked him if it was strange to have both of them considering a run for president. No, we are. We have different worldviews and different experiences and, and they're different people. We're, we're two distinct voices trying to make sense out of how do we bring this country back in the right direction, back together. What's distinct about the two of you? Well, I'm not going to, again, Senator Bennett is his own person, right? It's not my job to do your work. You're supposed to figure out what's distinct about us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, We will hopefully hear soon about whether either or both of these men uh, is or are running. Thanks so much, Anthony. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Anthony Cotton was in Iowa last weekend with U.S. Senator Michael Bennett and former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. You can read Anthony's account of the weekend at CPR.org. More people than ever are buying cannabis, but the industry itself has stalled in Colorado and it's at risk of falling behind other states. Companies say they desperately need investor capital. Some marijuana businesses believe they have the answer. They want to be publicly traded. But as CPR's business reporter Ben Marcus explains, not everyone is convinced that's a good idea. Livewell is like the Walmart of weed in Colorado. They're huge probably the largest seller of marijuana in the state. Dean Heiser runs LiveWell. Back in the early days, he used to park cash in a safe in his office. Now things are more civilized. He has a bank account for one. But in some important ways, Colorado is no longer the pioneer in cannabis. 
Now we are chasing the wagon (laughs) and we need to get back on the wagon and then we need to get enough capital so that we can actually start driving the wagon again. We are falling behind. Because Colorado doesn't allow public investment in cannabis businesses. States like California and Florida do. So cannabis companies there can issue stock and fund massive expansions. While Heiser says Colorado companies like his have to rely mostly on in-state private money. And there are not a lot of private investors floating around Colorado. The restrictions are a holdover from the early days of marijuana, when the state wanted to keep ownership small to keep a close eye on it. Heiser's behind an effort to change that. A bill that would allow public trading in Colorado is scheduled to get its first hearing on Monday. Competition is causing the price of marijuana to fall. Many small mom-and-pop dispensaries are struggling, and without large-scale public investor money... There will be less capital to acquire the people that want to go out of business and exit, and instead they will just go out of business. In some cases, losing their life savings. And that would mean lost jobs and tax revenue, too. And companies like LiveWell have gotten so big that there isn't enough private money in Colorado to buy them either. So big and small operators are stuck. Heiser says opening up marijuana to the public markets would allow nearly unlimited capital. And there are other benefits. We don't really know much about marijuana businesses in Colorado because they're all private. If they were public, they'd have to disclose all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a lot of, um, shall we say, sh- potential for shadow activity in the private arena that's not available in the public arena. That makes sense in theory, but let's dig into it a bit, because in practice, there actually has been shadow activity in public trading of marijuana companies in other states. The Securities and Exchange Commission issuing a strong warning this week to those looking to invest in marijuana stocks. Warning that fraudsters may manipulate stock prices, may spread false and misleading information, and may try to use media coverage of marijuana legalization to promote investment scams. These headlines are a big reason why Chris Woods is against public trading. He owns Terrapin Care Station, a chain of dispensaries centered in Boulder. Public trading is standard in every other business, but Woods is quick to point out that marijuana is not any other business. Yeah, the the difference is these businesses aren't legal on the federal level. He says Colorado's cautious approach to marijuana ownership is a good thing. Because what we are fearful of is that this will be a backdoor you know, to you know, allowing for black market activity. Colorado's U.S. attorney, Jason Dunn, seems to agree. He tells CPR that allowing public trading in marijuana raises real questions about whether bad actors can invest in the industry. That kind of federal scrutiny worries Woods more than falling behind other states like California. I mean, I don't think we will be left behind. I think we'll, you know, again, be seen as leaders for doing things in a responsible manner. But Woods may be fighting a lonely battle. Most people CPR contacted in and outside the industry think public trading is a good idea. Governor Jared Polis supports the bill. Tom Tenenbaum, a longtime securities attorney, says investor scams around marijuana aren't about it being federally illegal. Uh, Whatever is the hot new thing, uh, people intent on committing securities fraud are going to latch on to it. Tenenbaum says the same problems crept up around the Bitcoin craze. Sean McAllister, a cannabis attorney in Denver, says SEC regulation actually means more accountability. The SEC is not going to allow, you know, uh, Pablo Escobar to own a public company. McAllister has worked with marijuana companies since the first days of the industry. He says these capital-intensive operations need, well, capital. 
the general public thinks that every cannabis operator is filthy rich, and a lot of these folks are mom-and-pop operations that are struggling just like any other business. And he says public trading, freeing up capital, could maybe save some of them from closing down. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us at CPR News. Thank you.